0: The truth is out there. And by out there, I mean in a nine-page document from the Pentagon. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the US government open up about what they know or at least are willing to admit about UFOs, which could not happen a moment faster given at least one major tech company has been given approval to take passengers into space. We look at the legacy of one of the most influential but dangerous people in tech history and 1.5 billion US dollars. That is how much social content company BuzzFeed reckon they are worth. Do you agree? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to download this show. Indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guests this week, we have social media strategist Meg Coffee joining us. Welcome, Meg. Good morning. And do we have a guest appearance by your dog yet? Or is that something we're like, we're, we're going to build up to later in the show?
1: I think we're going to build up to that one, you know, see if the magpie outside really aggravates him or not.
0: <laughs> and alongside Meg, uh, joining us from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast is technology journalist extraordinaire Angharad Yo. Welcome back.
2: Hello, extraordinary to be here.
0: You have two snakes. If you can get them a cameo in this series, I will be like forever in your debt.
2: If you (laughs) warn me early next time I can, because I have to put the cat away first in case the snake eats the cat.
0: Wait, wait, so it's not the cat damaging the snake, it's the snake's eating the cat.
2: Oh, no, the cat's like the size of a rat. The snake (laughs) would get her in an instant.
0: Well, if you need to escape, <sighs> maybe you can go to space. Uh, this week saw some major news with Virgin Galactic getting its official okay to fly passengers to the—I should say—to the edge of space. Right? Is that is that whatever that means? Is that the, well, talk me through I mean,
2: this? Space is a frame of mind, <laughs> right? so really wow we got existential fast (laughs) i mean if you took me say 50 kilometers above the earth's surface i would probably feel like i'm in space but there is some debate as to how far you have to go for it to constitute space (laughs) so the virgin galactic plane is going about 90 kilometres, kind of between that 80 to 90 kilometre region. And that, according to the US Federal Aviation Administration, counts as space. Other people use the metric of 100 kilometres above the Earth's surface. So it just really
1: depends on who you ask.
0: Right. So Meg, what's the timeline for this? When is it likely to happen? Do we know?
1: Well, it looks like it's pretty soon. Actually, They've, Virgin Galactic wants to run a couple more tests before they actually, you know, put it out to the general public. But they have received the licensing that they need, and so space tourism basically is upon us. There's a there's a big question mark though at the moment. Is um, Branson going to beat Jeffrey Bezos because mm. they're both racing for it? And Bezos says he's going in July. So that's like
0: that's like like weeks away. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay.
0: So
2: him and what certification? <laughs> He hasn't gotten his certification yet. So Bezos doesn't have commercial certification yet? Virgin is beating them out in that regard. So that's why it's looking like Virgin are going to get there first. They've both done test flights, certainly, so they can both technically say that they've done it, but in terms of having the commercial aspect of it, yeah, Virgin are ahead.
0: So is that why Bezos is making a big deal? We should say for those of you playing along at home, if you aren't familiar with the name, uh, Jeffrey Bezos is the man behind Amazon. Very rich, also interested in going to space, but he did announce uh, last couple of days that he was heading in, as uh, was mentioned earlier, into space in, in July. Do you reckon that's why he's announced? because Virgin have sort of beat him to the certification game for commercial space flight route.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I want to believe in uh, these billionaires having a petty squabble about who does commercial flights (laughs) to space first because do we not have larger issues going on? No, definitely not.
0: I can't think of anything that the nation is dealing with right now more interesting than this.
2: (laughs) But what I really love is that Branson is kind of playing... Dr. Jekyll here, in that he's self-experimenting and he really badly wants to be one of the people in the next test flight, sort of maybe ignoring the fact that they did have a test flight in 2014, which resulted in serious injury and death.
0: Mm. How much Mm. is it actually going to cost, Meg? Like, if you really did want to do this, like, what would you be paying in order to get to the edge of space?
1: Well, it looks like it's only going to cost $400,000, but only? I think that I, that's, I love the only well, <laughs> there. Only. It's just that <laughs> hey look, <laughs> it actually doesn't seem like that much. But the thing is though is I think that it's all going to be relative because I think that that might be be sort of like the base price. But then they're going to, you know, they're going to auction off some seats. I know that Bezos auctioned one off that was for several million dollars. So, yeah, starting price just a measly 400,000. Right. US.
0: Rad, you mentioned the fact that there were, you know, some pretty serious incidences only a few years ago. Have they publicly communicated what they've changed since those horrific incidents?
2: I mean, I think the word improvement likes to get thrown around quite a lot, doesn't it? That they've improved things. Um, I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding in that they have had several successful test flights since that incident. So whatever they have changed does seem to be working. Um, Virgin Galactic actually work in an interesting way that's a little bit different to what everybody else seems to be doing in that they have an actual plane. So rather than it being like a pod on top of a rocket, like you would imagine for general space travel, they're actually kind of using rockets to launch a plane into that upper atmosphere, which then detaches from those rockets and completes its flight. So I think, you know, using what isn't necessarily the traditional technologies in that space as well, space... Yeah, there you go. Hey. Little joke for you there. Um, is also, you know, presents its own challenges because you're probably uh, working a little bit more off the abstract and off your own data rather than being able to use other people's data as well.
0: Mm. So there are applications for that sort of technology, Meg, that are beyond just like going into space. I mean, we're also looking at technology that might make actual sort of, you know, nation to nation travel faster by by going higher and building a higher arc. Is that where the, the money is likely to come from or do you actually think there is a market specifically in people just wanting to go to the edge of space for the sake of it, Meg?
1: Oh well, I think both. I mean, definitely there's a market for people wanting to go to the edge of space, and it's not just these crazy billionaires with too much money. I think that there's definitely a massive interest. Whether or not that remains commercially viable, I, I think we'll see. That said, if we can return to you know, I mean, the Concorde was early days when you could get from L.A. to New York in absolutely no time. If we can return to days like that, where we can you know travel from Perth to London in six hours. Why not look at that?
2: Uh, well, they have sold about 600 tickets um, hey, for
0: Virgin Galactic. Dog appearance. Hey,
2: there it is. Hey. In the meantime, my puppy is sleeping behind me like an angel.
0: All right, Just it's not quiet a dog and off.
2: Calm. <laughs> um, no, but Virgin Galactic have sold about 600 tickets already, apparently. But when you look at that, you're like, well, how many more tickets are you gonna sell past that? After everybody who has enough money to engage in space travel do it, are you really going to have that many more customers? I kind of don't think so. I think that it's quite novelty and it'll be just you know a once in a lifetime experience, not something that you're going to do frequently. Um, so I think that the implications for more commercial general travel are what's going to continue fueling this kind of technology, which has been given a boost by space tourism.
0: What do you think the next steps are, Meg? Where does this category go from here? Because I mean, to the point that what Rad was saying, which is like, in a sense, with space, there's kind of nowhere to go. Like, you can go up, you can see it, but it's not like there's a moon base or another planet to go to, right? At the moment, anyway. So if you look at the history of travel, the history of travel is somewhat predicated on the notion that you have somewhere to land or you have somewhere to go. So what becomes the next stage in this whole category of space tourism?
1: I think that's it is having having a place to land, whether that becomes, you know, I mean, it sounds crazy, but like a moon hotel or or actually getting people into outer space, not just the edge of space is going to be the next frontier, because I think, you know, we're going to whet the appetite of all these wealthy billionaires. Yeah, they're going to do it once, but then they're going to be like, that was awesome. I need to go again. I need to do something bigger and better and spend all my money.
0: All right, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guess this week are social media strategist, Meg Coffey, and technology journalist and co-host of the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Angharad Yo, Mark Fennell is my name, and John McAfee may well be the most controversial person to ever exist in the world of technology and There are days, I think, possibly just the most controversial person to exist. Uh, Now, sadly, (laughs) he passed away this week, but he left behind a really fascinating, bizarre, and it should be said quite disturbing in moments, legacy. Rad, this is your opportunity to give a eulogy. If you had to (laughs) explain who John McAfee was, how would you start? I well, I would
2: start by saying he was the founder of McAfee antivirus software, which a lot of people would be quite familiar with the name at least, whether that be uh, good memories of being protected by malware or bad memories of lots and lots of pop-ups coming up on their <laughs> new computer. Uh, Mine is you know, the latter. To you.
0: Consistently the <laughs> latter.
2: Um, But that company launched in the 1980s and was wildly successful. In fact, it ended up getting sold, I think, to Intel for 7.7 billion US dollars. So a very, very successful company. But when you delve a little bit deeper into John's life, it gets really, really interesting. He was quite the character. There's actually a 2016 documentary about his life, or a particular aspect of his life, called Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee, which in itself is surprising because I wouldn't think that a software nerd would have that dangerous of a life, but in 2012... His neighbour was found shot dead in his home. They had apparently had some disputes over McAfee's dogs. And when I say dogs, you think like, oh, he's got two dogs. Apparently he had eight to 12 very aggressive dogs that he would control using tasers. Yeah. I know, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) And the documentary alleges that McAfee essentially hired someone to have his neighbour killed because he, he believed that the neighbour had poisoned one of his dogs. You know, McAfee fled police uh, and when they turned up at his house, they did not find him. Instead, they found a large number of weapons in his home and a 17-year-old girl that he was living with. But then fast forward a couple of years, in 2016, he announced his intention to run for president with a campaign that was a war against drugs. He was unsuccessful, unfortunately for him. And then you fast forward again to, you know, 2020 and just before, and he ended up arrested in Spain for tax evasion. And at the same time, a US indictment was issued against him for essentially cryptocurrency pump and dump schemes in which Dogecoin was involved. And they say that he was encouraging people um, under false pretenses to purchase Dogecoin. Just very, very interesting man who, you know, obviously, regardless of what the rest of his life was, um, it is quite tragic, the end that he found himself in. But one of the most colourful lives I think I have ever peeked at...
1: I think to the general public, you know, his legacy will definitely be the antiviral software. I think the majority of the public don't know about what he got up to in later life and, you know, the the crazy exploits that he was on. You know, once again, too much money and some crazy ideas.
0: It's worth pointing out, Meg, that I think the software company, which he kind of removed himself from or was removed from, they've really distanced themselves from him over the years, haven't they?
1: Oh definitely. It's one of those things that yes, you know it might be his last name, but they want absolutely nothing to do with with the person himself um, He was you know he would say some crazy things, he would bring attention to himself that wasn't at all in any way good for business and I think if it wasn't such a well known brand and a well known thing i'm I'm actually surprised they didn't change the name of the, of the software mm. Mm-hmm.
2: If we're looking at it from a really kind perspective, I would say that he was a risk taker and someone who, you know, really uh, sucked the marrow out of life, I suppose. Mm. But if you look at the numerous, Ah. numerous allegations against him as even being partially true, then I think he did seem like quite a dangerous person and quite a terrifying person in Mm. a lot of regards. You know... What, what truly can you say about someone who has numerous allegations of violence and even rape and drugs against them?
0: Mm, well, it's a hard one. It's a very, very yeah. hard one, and he is gone now. Uh, download the show. It is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And is BuzzFeed worth $1.5? billion dollars because that's how much they're talking about it being worth at the moment rad why is this uh number of 1.5 billion dollars become attached to buzzfeed uh
2: because they're looking to sell they're going through the current processes of becoming public and also um in that process trying to acquire other media outlets as well so I believe it was like kind of a self put number, but they're sort of like valuing themselves at one point five billion. In my opinion, is anything worth a billion dollars truly?
0: We are. Is there the any such of us thing collectively, as collectively? Yes. <laughs> one point, I would say one point five five personally. Oh,
2: okay. Just and know. how much? How much are you worth in that personally?
0: I mean, we're a team. It serves no purpose. <laughs> to, <laughs> it serves no value to create these divisions. Mm. In a harmonious <laughs> team. Um, Meg, so that, um, I mean, just separating it from the number, BuzzFeed's had a really interesting kind of trajectory. Uh, it, was, of course, started by Jonah Peretti, who had come from Huffington Post, and really it rode that wave of, of social content, content that really people wanted to share. Um, and it really kind of, in some ways, it, it reflects the rise of, of social media itself, things that became popular on Facebook and Twitter, especially.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, BuzzFeed at, at its height was the gold standard in how to get engagement on Facebook. You know, the way that they would A-B test headlines, the way that they had their listicles, the way that they um, just created content that people wanted to consume. They knew exactly what they were doing. So had you asked me if they were worth $1.5 billion at the height, I would have definitely said yes but i think that that time has come and gone we don't interact with social media the way that we we used to clickbait headlines just we actually don't click on the clickbait headlines anymore because we see them from a mile away and we know exactly what it is that they're trying to do so i think that that, that era that buzzfeed sort of pioneered has has come and gone and unless they're going to reinvent themselves i don't see how they're worth 1.5 billion
0: well, yeah, this is the thing. They went through a period of really intense global expansion. They were setting up in newsrooms all around the world. They had some quite big news hits. Obviously they've they were quite active in the lead up and the run of the Trump presidency. And it seems, at least from where I stand, that in many ways the organization has kind of shrunk a bit, Rad. Is that just the impression I get, or do you vibe that as well?
2: Oh, no, they certainly have. There were massive layoffs, I think, throughout maybe it was 2014 and also 2019. And then when they merged with HuffPo, they also lost further employees. So they've had quite a number of people, you know, get cut off. And when you look at that and you think, okay, well, you know, they've suffered a little bit of difficulties and they're kind of having to reinvent themselves. And they've been really good at innovation and reinventing themselves in the past. But how are you going to continue that when people are the ones that come up with ideas for where to take your business and you're losing people? So I think that looking at that alone, I would say, they're a little bit of a sinking ship rather than one that is rising again like a phoenix but at the same time without you know being in the inner workings it can be a little bit hard to say but certainly those layoffs were a really big deal and kind of I think to everyone quite indicative that they're not doing so well anymore.
1: I think they tarnished the brand as well. The way they handled those layoffs was just, it was not cool. You know, I think there was one group of people that were laid off by a conference call all at once. It just, people turned on the brand. They didn't like that they weren't treating their people with respect. And it gives you a icky feeling and BuzzFeed just doesn't have that same coolness that it used to have.
0: We're also talking about an organisation that's kind of changed a lot in public perception, right? So obviously they were very famous for kind of fun social content, quizzes, things like that, which I think still do perform. And also there was kind of offshoots like Tasty, which was their food arm, and I think there was a stat at a period of time there where at least 50% of Americans had seen a Tasty video, sub one-minute fast, shot-from-over-the-top food videos. But there was that kind of component to the organisation and then there was the the BuzzFeed News component. And the BuzzFeed News component, you know, generated some really big stories and really had a huge impact in in certain kind of areas. It feels like there was always a bit of a tension, at least in the public perception of the organisation, between those two things, whereas, you know, wanting to be taken seriously, for lack of a better term, in a news division, they would always come up against this, you know, prevailing view that it was cute cat videos, right? And at the same time, even internally, they would acknowledge that that content the fun stuff, was still where the traffic was. And I feel like, you know, now looking at that, I don't want to feel like I'm totally eulogising them because they still exist and they still hire people, but it feels like they never really navigated that tension and, and how to make those two things coexist. Tell me if I'm wrong, Rad.
2: I think you're kind of right. I, and I think that most content creators uh, deal with this issue where do you want to be popular and fun or do you want to be important? And, you know, even the ABC, I think that that's something that the ABC um, holds in tension of. We have the wonderful opportunity to be a public broadcaster who's here to create important content for all Australians, but at the same time... It never feels quite good and does it feel like a good use of resources if you're creating content that is very unpopular if only a couple of people watch? Mm -hmm. That's something that's really interesting to look at across all content makers. But in BuzzFeed in particular, I think they were at a point where they were really, really well-primed to evolve and to become something more important. Maybe that could have been a bit of a rebrand where they have um, that you know, more investigative journalism going on. And Teen Vogue managed to do it quite well, but they struggled with it and they couldn't drop that, you know, funny quiz, silly kind of brand on them. And that makes people not quite trust the journalism that they're doing, even if it's really sound and it's got good editorial over it and all the rest of it. So I think that it's possible that BuzzFeed have missed their chance to become something more, evolve with the times and continue their success, but time will tell.
0: Mm. If you look, at Meg, at the history of BuzzFeed, it's amazing how vulnerable they were to changes on the big social media platforms. So, you know, when Facebook decided to change its algorithm to kind of pivot away from video or to change the kind of articles they're putting forward, you know, a company that had built itself on top of social media found itself, you know, really at the mercy of those organisations in some ways. And is there something of a cautionary tale in that in terms of not building a business reliant on, on a third party to deliver your audience?
1: Oh, 10,000%. I mean, they're the perfect case study of what happens when you build on rented land. In just any second, it can be taken away from you. I think, you know, more recently, more locally, when we had the Facebook news ban here in Australia, we saw what happened when your when your main platform was taken away from you and you, you didn't have access to the people that you once used to and, and how that impacted your reach. So I think, you know, but I think BuzzFeed came out in the very beginning of social. They figured out how to make the platform work for themselves You know, they, they were in talks, they, they edited their content, they, they figured out the algorithm, but then all of a sudden Facebook didn't want to play nice anymore. And when that happened, Buzzfeed was sort of left holding the bag. So it's a thousand percent, 10,000 percent, a cautionary tale. You've got to make sure that you have access to your audience on your own platforms, on the things that you can control, because whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of these TikTok, it can be taken away from you in an instant.
2: I think that it, shows that it's really difficult, though, to succeed without those platforms nowadays. I think that audiences more and more aren't necessarily going to a site directly, and they're not necessarily finding new sites without something like Google or Facebook or Twitter. And it's more, in my opinion, a cautionary tale of how the overall consumption of media has drastically changed And we're all in the hands of these social media platforms. And they're they're really the ones that hold the power at the moment. So companies do kind of have to innovate and figure out the algorithms and figure out how to work with them in order to be successful. But at the same time, their success ends up not being uh, up to them because... It is just up to the algorithm. So it is something that I think is a much bigger issue and, again, does go back to, for example, the media bargaining um, law that, that came up in Australia and all that BuzzFeed can do now is show us what, how bad it can go.
0: Download this show is what you're listening to, your guide to the week in media, technology and culture, and I, I promised it at the beginning and I will deliver. UFOs. Uh, Last week, the Office of the (laughs) Director of National Intelligence in the United States released a long-awaited Pentagon UFO report. Did we finally find out, Meg, whether the truth was out there?
1: Absolutely not. The report basically (laughs) told us nothing.
0: (laughs) You mean I sat through 11 seasons of The X-Files for nothing? (laughs)
1: Yeah, pretty much. Look, I was so excited to read this report. I'm like, yes, it's here. It's going to explain it. And then you read it and it's like, yep, so really we're not telling you anything because we we don't really know and there really isn't anything to tell you because you guys are all making it up.
0: But it does acknowledge, Rad, that there, there are yeah. things that have been in the sky that they haven't identified. And it's worth pointing out that... Okay, so if you remove, I guess the, there is a natural sort of like laughable quotient to to this, right, that you would assume that if you're a federal agency and you had unidentified anything in your airspace, you'd want to have a good idea of what it is. And you know, removing the alien component, like foreign (laughs) interference, like there's a whole bunch of reasons why you would want to know and want to be able to identify everything in your airspace, right?
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, when you think about it in quite real terms, It's a little bit scary to think that there are things that we don't know and don't understand very close to us. But at the same time, you have to remember that even our oceans have largely been unexplored. There is a lot of everything around us that we don't understand. We don't even fully know how worms reproduce yet. We've not seen it properly. So you just kind of have to accept that there's stuff that we don't know yet. There's so much that science can tell us, but at the same time, there's so much that it can't yet. Um, so the report mostly said like, oh, it could be things like bugs in the system or technical glitches and environmental phenomena, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I kind of, I understand uh, the viewpoint of, I'm sorry, we just don't know at this stage. We haven't figured it out.
0: There are a few interesting things about the report, one of which is uh, they've sort of done away, Meg, with the acronym UFO. They've replaced it with UAP, which is actually, what what does that actually stand for, UAP? Yeah, so Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Right, and why would they have changed it? Is it just because it, there's too much baggage attached to UFO as an acronym?
1: Well, I think so, but also it makes it a little bit more technical because we don't necessarily know that it is a flying object Object. I think you know the report says, as as Rad was just saying, you know, it could have been a technical glitch. It could have been, you know, a, a windstorm or a sensor or something that we just we aren't capable of of measuring yet. So it's an aerial phenomenon. It's something that's in the air that that doesn't seem quite right, and we can't quite identify it yet. But we don't necessarily think that it's a flying object.
0: Mm. So in the uh, cases of uh, pilots who've recorded 11 near misses that are documented in the report, what was the most interesting thing that came out of the report for you? Was there anything that stood out as being particularly notable?
1: Oh, I don't know. Like I think there were quite a few things that were interesting. I think, you know, there are the 11 near misses that the that the pilots have said. There, there has to be something in that. And it does worry me that a lot of these do tend to happen over Air Force bases and security bases. But then the report also highlights that we have a lot more security around security bases. So we're paying a lot more attention to these particular spots because they're spots of national security. You know, we're not paying attention to the middle of the desert because there's there's nothing to pay attention to out there. Harry, so maybe we are a bit more sensitive. <laughs> That's right. Harry, is there. <laughs> That's the most secure it's interesting i i think it's definitely i think there's more to come i think as always with government they never tell us the full story even if they have been compelled in this case to tell us what they know i still don't believe it's everything
0: well the men in black have <laughs> rocked up to remove my memories now so i should probably wrap up the show thank you so much radio for being on the show it was lovely to have you back on thank you if you enjoyed the voice of Ankara radio make sure you check out the queens of the drone age podcast and meg coffee thank you so much for joining us
1: Thanks for having me and my dog.
0: Yes, I love the guest appearance by the dog. It was delightful. And with that, I shall leave you. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to be listening to us on. We're on all of them now, Apple, Spotify, all the rest of them, so do leave us a review. It would be greatly appreciated. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.